EM Guidewire, hard-hitting emergency medicine from Carolina's Medical Center. Hello and welcome back to EM Guidewire brought to you by the residents and faculty from the Emergency Medicine Residency Program at Carolina's Medical Center here in Charlotte, North Carolina. Again, I'm Sean Fox. I'm coming to you from the J. Lee Garvey Innovation Studio and thank you for joining us. This episode is going to introduce you all to a new series, one that hopefully will help us all understand how to better interpret those squiggly lines on that piece of paper that we call an electrocardiogram. STEMIs, NSTEMIs, OMIs, oh my. Honestly, I get very confused by it all. Fortunately, I have a wonderful colleague here, Dr. Pendle Myers, who is going to join one of our chief residents, Dr. Claire Gunn, and they're going to spend a little bit of time chatting and enlightening us on how we should approach the ECG and hopefully deliver better care for our patients. So without further ado, Dr. Gunn and Dr. Myers, take it away. Hello, this is Claire. I'm one of the third year residents at Carolinas Medical Center. I'm currently in the Jaylee Garvey Innovation Studio at Carolinas Medical Center, bringing you an episode of EM Guidewire. I am here with Dr. Pendle Myers, who is the author of the OMI Manifesto and one of our outstanding faculty mentors. And he is going to chat with us today about the STEMI criteria and occlusion myocardial infarction and how we can be better emergency medicine doctors for our patients with acute coronary syndrome. Hello, and thank you for having me. This is my favorite topic to talk about. I knew that you would be excited to chat about this. So one of the reasons that I got interested in the STEMI criteria and occlusion myocardial infarction is I had a patient late in my second year who I took care of who had severe chest pain, who was diaphoretic, who had a positive troponin, and the physician I was working with, we got EKG after EKG after EKG, and we stared at them, and we stared at them, and we stared at them, and none of them met STEMI criteria, but we were really concerned about his symptoms. He had a positive troponin, and the next day, the cardiologist looks at his EKGs, and they take him to the cath lab, and he had 100% LED occlusion, and they could tell from looking at his EKG. I showed it to different people in the emergency department. I showed it to you, and immediately, you knew that he had 100% LED occlusion, and I was mystified, I'm embarrassed to say, because he didn't have a STEMI. And at that point, all I knew was STEMI, no STEMI. And now I've learned a lot more about it. And so I feel like if I was a late second year resident and didn't really understand the STEMI criteria and what an OMI is and how we can be better ER doctors for our patients, then there must be other people who also don't understand it. Yeah, I think you're totally right. Um, there's so much to unpack in the case you said and everything that you realized from that. I think let's start with the most basic thing that you said, which is light years ahead of current practice, which is the fact that you know what the STEMI criteria are trying to look for, right? Right. You've just implied that you looked at that piece of paper, that EKG, so that you could find evidence of an acute coronary occlusion, and that is not understood well. So that's the absolute beginning of, of this discussion the fact that you actually know what you're looking for in that patient using that EKG, which is not very well known, and that's not uh, the current understanding of the STEMI paradigm. So yeah. Let's get into it, yeah. Yeah. So do you know, like, where did the STEMI criteria come from? Why do we use that? Why is that the language that we use to define whether or not someone has a coronary occlusion when it doesn't seem to be perfect? 
Yeah, a long, long history there that starts back in the 70s, 80s, 90s when we found out that during the reperfusion era, when we found out that we could reperfuse a, a myocardial infarction that was actively happening in front of us using thrombolytics. And so this all culminated in 1994 with this publication that everyone refers to as the FTT, Fibrinolytic Trialist Therapy something, a meta-analysis, where mm -hmm. they had 60, uh, roughly 60,000 patients enrolled in RCTs getting lytics or not getting lytics. The people that were enrolled were just enrolled based on high clinical suspicion of active heart attack. Some of the trials required you to be having ST elevation, some did not. Some required ST depression, for example. So these people were not enrolled based on an EKG. They were enrolled based on their clinical suspicion. Okay. And then half of them got lytics and half of them didn't. These are like high-quality RCTs done mm -hmm. throughout the world. And they found that just getting into the trial with that history and that exam, um, you got mortality benefit from getting lytics. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine just seeing a patient clutching their chest with great story chest pain and just giving them lytics without even looking at the EKG? It's wild. That's wild what they time. did in these studies. And those patients had mortality benefit. But then they didn't stop there, which is good, but not good enough. They broke those patients down into three subgroups. The only information they had from these, I think it was nine RCTs, was just a yes or no, did they have elevation? Okay. Every trial was different amounts of elevation, different leads, different numbers of leads not at all standardized or even defined. They didn't even tell you where they measured it. And when they did this very crude uh, subgroup analysis into ST elevation, ST depression, or neither, which mm -hmm. they just called normal, they found that the patients with the elevation did better than the other two groups. In fact, the depression group and the no elevation or depression group um, had no mortality benefit at all. And I think one of the groups had a non-significant mortality harm from lytics. Okay. And everybody in the whole study had about a 1% or 2% rate of um, increased death in the 24 hours after getting lytics. Okay. But then the group that benefited benefited even greater than that 1% you know, 24-hour death rate in 30 days. So bottom line, they did a subgroup analysis, and they found that the only subgroup with benefit was elevation. Completely undefined, different in every study. So that is where this idea that ST elevation are the only ones that benefit come from. But that doesn't mean that people with ST elevation are the only ones that benefit, right? They didn't do any subgroup analysis where they looked at people with occlusion, right? right. The ST elevation is the surrogate for the acute occlusion. That makes sense. In these studies, they didn't even have angiography. They don't even know that the ones with elevation were the ones with occlusion. They just said, hey, I gave lytics to these people, and these elevation people got more benefit than anybody else. Right. That's very crude and, and not what we're actually asking today. But that is where history left it. In 1994, there's never been any more randomized controlled trial data looking at who might benefit more than the rest. We stopped in 1994. Man. We called the paradigm STEMI. It took place in 2000. They officially changed the name of the paradigm. And since then, no one has ever tried to improve the selection of who benefits from emergent reperfusion. So let me ask you this. What happens in the cath lab? What do they do? So my understanding from being a resident in the cardiac ICU is they go to the cath lab, they shoot dye into the coronary arteries, and they look to see if there is an occlusion. They take an actual look at the blood flow through the coronary arteries to the myocardium. That's exactly right. If they find the acute occlusion, they can usually, hopefully, open it. It is literally, from our perspective in the emergency department, it is a coronary artery occlusion opening lab. Right. Yes, they can do things for cardiogenic shock and other situations, but when we look at an EKG and talk about STEMIs and EKGs like that, we're talking about acute coronary occlusion. Mm -hmm. Those are the patients that benefit. 
So that is the first step, is understanding that the EKG is a very crude screen for the thing that we care about, which is patient walking down the street, ruptures a plaque, and gets complete coronary artery occlusion. That's who we're looking for. And since the year 1994-2000, everybody in the world has been looking for it with the same simple tool, ST elevation, and that's it. So wow, that is so problematic, and let's yeah. get into talking about that. I mean, I can't imagine... It's really hard for me to reckon with the idea that we just stopped in 1994. For a little bit of context, I was born in 1990. So that would be, <laughs> that, I mean, that would be if we stopped, if I stopped growing up from age four <laughs> onward, like yeah. so much has happened since the 1990s. It's amazing to me that we don't have additional studies and more data to show how we can be better or to like what else to look for. Yep. So I guess then, you know, my next question is, is, what are the other things that we can look for to see signs of coronary occlusion, since that's who we think is going to benefit in the cath lab on an EKG if they don't have ST elevation? Sure, sure. Um, so the first thing, I guess, to say is how much are we missing, which is using this paradigm. So yeah. um, under the current practice, like in the 2000s and 20, 2010s, our NSTEMI groups that get admitted to the hospital as an NSTEMI, about mm -hmm. 25% of those patients are found to have a missed coronary occlusion. So we're missing about 25% of our NSTEMI group. Which, that seems unacceptable, right? One in four? That seems less than ideal. Yeah. And it would be okay if we didn't know that they were dying more often. So we have a huge meta-analysis by Kahn et al. and the European Heart Journal, 2018, I believe, where they have 40,477 NSTEMI patients who are all in like RCTs and prospective observational trials getting admitted for high-quality care of their NSTEMIs, and 25% of them have a missed coronary artery occlusion, usually found 24, 48 hours later, you know, the typical right. Monday morning cath. Right. And those patients that had the missed occlusions that were found and, and cared for 24 hours later, they had double mortality, almost double mortality at every time point, uh, short and long term. And the time points stop at about two years. And you can imagine they would probably keep diverging as well and more CHF and more long term outcomes. But we know that those patients die about double as often, even the in hospital rates as the patients with the instamies who don't have occlusion myocardial infarction. Okay. So we know they die more often. We know we're missing them. And this has all sort of come to a head in the past few years as the medical community is sort of being forced to recognize that problem and yeah. this, this problem with the paradigm. So now we're left with, what do we do now? How do we find them better? Um, and what do we do? So um, what part do you want to talk about first? EKG stuff or, or other stuff? Well... So one of the things that I need to make sure that I understand is how to talk to my cardiologist about patients with chest pain. Yeah. So when they don't have a STEMI, you know, there are things that we can look for on the EKG, and I need to know how to communicate that to my cardiologist without sounding like I know more to them or I'm talking down to them. Because totally. I ultimately cannot take the patient to the cath lab myself. I can't force a cardiologist to do a procedure on a patient that they don't want to do. So what sort of things can I look for on my EKG that the cardiologist will acknowledge and recognize that will help me communicate to them that I'm concerned about a patient? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, first, let's talk about the non-EKG stuff. So, yeah. Because honestly, like, not many cardiologists are on board with what this, this whole topic that we're discussing right now. None of them have heard of, of OMI or occlusion MI. They're just now reading this literature in their journals that show that we're missing a ton of NSTEMIs and they're dying more. So let's talk about what's already in place for for that cardiologist who's not already on this cutting edge with us and talking about OMI and things like that. Yeah. Because we already do have some tools that can help us. So even since the STEMI paradigm has been in place, 
and uh, and within STEMI guidelines, there have always been um, indications for emergent cath for in-STEMI patients, which I, I find when I tell that to, to young learners, it's often surprising to them because in real life, we, we watch STEMIs go to cath lab and in-STEMIs don't. Right. Um, but there are already guideline indications for emergent cath that we should know about and we should be able to discuss with that cardiologist. So for example, in-STEMI with persistent ischemic pain mm-hmm. that is not relieved by maximal medical therapy. I'll tell you what that means in a minute. That patient is already an indication in every country that has NSTEMI guidelines, including USA and Europe and Australia and everywhere that I've ever seen. That patient is supposed to go to cath within two hours of that indication being found. Wow. So if you have that patient that you described earlier with the ongoing chest pain and you're, you're not quite sure about the EKG, it doesn't quite meet criteria, you've given them aspirin and heparin, and the patient still has ongoing pain, and you really believe that the patient has ACS mm-hmm. and not some other cause, that's mm-hmm. already an indication in everyone's guidelines, our cardiology ACC AHA guidelines, to go to the cath lab. So if you can communicate that with, with the cardiologist and say, hey, this patient has maximal has ischemic pain ongoing despite maximal medical management, they're supposed to respect that their own guidelines already. So right. us knowing their guidelines and our guidelines for ED management of NSTEMI, I think is number one, because we already have that. That's already been in place in all of the previous guidelines. Right. And that falls into the category of being an advocate for your patient. You know, you're, I'm the doctor in the emergency room watching my patient sweat, watching him grab his chest, thinking to myself, this is ACS. I don't have what I need on the EKG to make my cardiologist take this patient to the cath lab, but I still think he needs it and I'm really worried about it. And so I can do a better job communicating that to my physician colleagues and explaining to them that... I'm really worried about this. This seems like ACS. We have ruled out other things. The patient that I spoke about at the beginning of this case, we sent him to the CT scanner to make sure he didn't have a dissection because we were trying to figure out why he was so uncomfortable. And so using those guidelines, the severe refractory ischemic pain can, I think, really help us get our cardiology colleagues to take patients to the cath lab or get them on board earlier in these cases where the EKGs are not slam dunk. Totally agree. Other indications for NSTEMI emergent cath would be um, electrical instability, meaning refractory VT, VF in the mm-hmm. setting of ACS mm-hmm. is supposed to be a mandated trip to the cath lab emergently. Also, cardiogenic shock that you deem due to acute ACS also already for 20 years has already been in all guidelines as a reason to go to the cath lab emergently. So that's like the guideline and clinical um, indications that we already should know about based on current practice before right. even we talk about OMI. Um, but then there's other things like um, bedside echo can help us a lot. Yeah. If you find a wall motion abnormality that matches the area that you're worried about on the EKG that doesn't quite meet STEMI criteria, that is very helpful evidence that there is ongoing acute coronary occlusion causing that wall motion abnormality. And a lot of cardiologists will respect that. Mm-hmm. What else? Um, we do have, you know, dynamic EKG changes. Even if you're not a whiz at the EKG, if you find dynamic changes in, in an area that makes sense for an artery, I think that's pretty helpful, and some right. cardiologists will, will can respect that. Um, but honestly, there's a lot of room for improvement on the EKG itself, and this is going to take you know, decades of research and teaching for us to get really good at the EKG, but I think there's a lot more room for uh, increased accuracy of who's having acute coronary occlusion and who's not based on the EKG. Right. So then moving into occlusion myocardial infarction, OMIs, From what I've read about looking at your work and Dr. Smith's work and talking to you in person and working with you on learning EKGs and getting better at them, there are things on an EKG that, while they're not ST elevations, often are concerning for occlusion myocardial infarction. Do you want to talk a little bit about what those are? 
Yeah, totally. Um, and so in, in the past, we've had these idea of like STEMI equivalents. And you'll recognize some of the things I talk about from that sort of list of STEMI equivalents. But the idea of STEMI equivalent has kind of, it, it just has expanded to, the list keeps getting bigger and bigger. Right. And when you talk about this to a cardiologist, it just kind of becomes like meaningless. Like it, yeah. there's really no such thing as a STEMI equivalent. The ACCAHA guidelines literally do not list anything as a STEMI equivalent. But um, there are a lot of things on the EKG that we could talk about. So uh, we just did a study, um, a retrospective cohort of high-risk chest pain patients uh, where I did residency at Stony Brook University. And we had 800 patients. We had 260-something patients with OMI, mm-hmm. so confirmed acute coronary occlusion. And about 50%, 40 or 50% of them had STEMI criteria. And then we looked at the patients, the other 50%, who didn't have STEMI criteria. Mm-hmm. And we looked at what findings uh, the expert EKG interpreter found that led them to know that they were OMI even without STEMI criteria. And we found eight findings, um, and the least frequent finding was present in about 50% of cases. So a lot of these okay. findings had, mo- a lot of these cases had multiple findings per patient. So okay. like two or three or four or five findings on this list of, non- of non-STEMI criteria on EKG that predicted or identified OMI. The most common ones um, were kind of simple, honestly. Uh, number one, I think with eight, like 83% of the patients had ST elevation that just didn't meet the criteria, just okay. wasn't enough, not enough millimeters, not enough leads, not enough adjacent leads. Okay. That was extremely common. Reciprocal findings was extremely common. So mm-hmm. reciprocal depression or reciprocal negative T waves, like the inverse of a hyperacute T wave. Mm-hmm. Speaking of hyperacute T waves, those were about 60% of those cases had hyperacute T waves. For the posterior MI, which is a whole topic unto itself, yeah. we, we, we found um, ST depression, maximal in V1 through V4, was extremely helpful at finding all of the posterior MI cases. We had terminal QRS distortion, which is a little bit more difficult. And then in the patients with wide QRS complexes, so left bundle, paste rhythms, a whole other topic, the modified Scarbosa criteria identified most of those patients. So we have a list of things that we looked at. And the issue is I can write them on paper, but that doesn't mean that you can go on shift and read the piece of paper and find them on the EKG. Yeah. This is a visual expertise. It is literally a radiologic expertise uh, topic here, and we just don't have any current radiologists for it, and no one is trained in memorizing these squiggly lines well enough um, unless you're a super dork and you've done this for 10 years looking at thousands of EKGs and looking at the angiograms and literally memorizing these lines. Yeah. I can write it down, but that doesn't mean that you can learn it by reading the piece of paper. Yeah. So, you know, I'm going to be in attending next year. I'm going to graduate residency. I'm going to be working in a community hospital setting, most likely. And someone's going to hand me four EKGs, and I'm going to have to look at them. And what I'm hearing is that I'm going to have to assign them, you know, no STEMI, but there's going to be other things I need to see that will be concerning. Yep. So, you know, when I have these patients who have these concerning findings and concerning stories, we're going to get them on a monitor, we're going to watch them. And then I'm going to look for those hyperacute T waves. I'm going to look for the reciprocal changes. But those hyperacute T waves, can you tell me a little bit more about what they look like? Are these similar to hyperkalemia? Are they the tall, skinny T waves? Are they big and fat? What do they look like? They're big and fat. Yeah, they um, they have increased. This is going to sound kind of scientific at first, and then we'll talk more about what it looks like. The area under the curve of the ST segment and the T wave. Okay. It will be increased from baseline, increased in respect to that QRS complex that made it. So, you know, as I have painfully told you a million times <laughs> during your EKG elective, um, the T waves and the ST segment are created by the QRS complex. Right. They're always interpreted in the context of their QRS. So once we finally get a computer to 
look at hyperacute T wave cases and figure out how to quantify them or how to really see them on a computer? The answer, I think, will be increased area under the curve of the T wave in the ST segment. This translates, and in respect to the QRS, this translates into a big, fat, wide um, T wave. They're not necessarily tall, although they are frequently tall. It's all about the area. The area of that T wave will increase in all directions um, soon after the artery becomes acutely occluded. The T wave will approach and even start to encroach on the QRS complex, and that's mm -hmm. called terminal QRS distortion mm -hmm. when it starts to destroy that very end of the QRS complex. Right. And that's what a hyperacute T wave is. You can't just say words like towering over the QRS complex or bigger than the QRS complex. None of those words will equip you to, to identify normal T waves versus hyperacute. And there's no millimeter cutoff. It's all relative. Everything about electricity and biology is always relative. It's, right. There's nothing, there's no rule, there's no contract that heart cells signed with humanity that when they become acutely ischemic, they have to manifest X millimeters. That's, right. that's crazy. Right. Um, and so hypercute T wave is a visual diagnosis that you can only get good at by just seeing a ton of them and training with someone who has done it um, longer than you. And then looking at the outcome and seeing if you're right and learning from those cases. Hypercute T waves always have to evolve. Any T wave that stays the same was not hyperacute. That makes sense. You can look at a baseline EKG and get even more information. So you could show me an EKG and I could say, I'm not sure if those are hyperacute. And then you could show me a baseline and I look in that same lead and I see a difference from baseline. And then I can be sure in a case where I wouldn't otherwise be sure. Got it. And on the other end of the obviousness spectrum, there are cases that can't possibly be a normal T wave and are so obviously hyperacute that I don't need a baseline. And so there's every every degree of, of um, difficulty in between on that spectrum. So it's very tough and it can only be done by training and having tons of cases with true hypercute T waves and false hypercute T waves, seeing the outcomes and just getting better. And I think this takes years, honestly. Yeah. And that makes sense. I mean, as an ER doctor, one of the best parts of our job is we admit or we disposition and the patients, they go away. And if you don't want to, you don't have to follow up on their cases. But I think if we really want to be excellent and we really want to do the best we can for our patients, following up on their outcomes, looking to see what the inpatient team did, that's part of it. That's part of learning from the cases you've seen and it'll make you a better doctor. And that's definitely something that I've started doing more as we have talked about all of these EKG findings. And as I've grown as a physician and trying to be better is I look at my patients' cath reports. I try to figure out what did I miss? What did I see? What was I right about? What was I wrong about? And that has really helped me grow. And as I move into starting to think about my life as an Attending, I definitely am going to be looking for those subtle EKG findings and just spending a lot more time analyzing the EKG and thinking about it in the context of the patient to make sure that I'm doing the right thing for my patient. Could not have said it better. Um, and one of the issues is it takes you so much effort and work to follow up those patients when ideally this should be a systems thing, right? So if you if you say went to work today and, and missed an obvious STEMI and the patient had a bad outcome, there's oh, a system for catching that. Yeah, I would get multiple emails and I would be very sweaty as I waited for them to call me into the office to tell me yeah. that I had missed this very obvious MI. Yeah. This morning, there was a phone call I was on reviewing, you know, the STEMI cases of the past month. And I sit on these phone calls and it's just so just disappointing to me that we have these systems that, that catch the patients who meet the STEMI criteria, but then we don't talk about, you know, we, we, we spend uh, 30 minutes talking about a case where there was a 10-minute delay <laughs> of activating the cath lab. And then I know I've seen these other cases that happen the same month where we have a complete coronary occlusion that goes missed for 24 hours, and we don't say anything about those cases. So the fact that you are trained to only care about STEMIs comes from the paradigm. It comes from, you know, this QA, QI system that only focuses on those patients. So 
as we understand this better, we need those systems to look for the patients with the missed coronary arteries who we know right. are dying at, at double rates of their, their counterparts. So I, I love that you want to just work harder and fi- follow up all your patients. That's great for all EM care. Um, but I really hope that the people out there who have the ability to change the QA, QI system um, can take this message to heart and improve the feedback on the patients who don't have all that time and dedication for every single patient, which we should have. Yeah. I know in the future, I'll definitely try to be more of an advocate for my patients talking about to consultants about their severe pain and getting them to the cath lab when I think they need the cath lab. Dr. Myers, do you have any other thoughts as we sort of wrap this up? I think that, you know, we talked a little bit about how you need to look at a bunch of EKGs, need to spend time analyzing them and training your eye to recognize them. Is there any resource that you use or anything that we as residents or medical students interested in emergency medicine can turn to to help try and find examples of these hypercute T waves and the QRS distortion? Certainly. Um, the only free, obvious resource that I know of is uh, our blog. So Dr. Stephen Smith is um, the best EKG reader in the world from the uh, perspective of occlusion and myocardial infarction. He's my mentor. He taught me everything. The only reason that I have any um, ability to find occlusion MI on the EKG is because I literally memorized everything he said on the blog. I, I made every blog post into a flashcard. And, and guys, <laughs> I've seen it. The deck, the Anki deck, it's so long. It's got so many EKGs in it. It is it, the nerdiest thing I've ever seen, but it is the reason Dr. Pendle Myers is as good as, at what he does as he is. It's the only way you can get good at this. This is like being a radiologist where you literally just have to see a million cases, see the result, see the EKGs evolve, and then go back and learn from from what you missed. Um, there's no other way to do this. You can't read an article or a, a textbook about EKGs and then be good at it. You need an expert buddy who will show you tons of cases and explain um, all of your misconceptions. And, and then once you do that for a while, you can sort of go on your own and follow up your cases, get all those EKGs and look at them carefully and look at the outcome and learn from every case in your career. Um, and that's really the only way to do this. So Dr. Smith's ECG blog, ECG blog is the name of our website. We have, um, I think at this point, we have over 1,500 or 2,000 cases um, since like 2008. Most of them have the you know angiogram available or at least the cath report where you can see the outcome. Tons of EKGs um, all linked together, tabbed. You can look for, if I want to, we can go online right now and look for anterior hyperacute T-waves. Awesome. For example, and you could you could see ten examples of that and ten examples of ones that were false negatives or false positives. So all you can do is spend time memorizing these squiggly lines. Yeah. For now. Yeah. Um, this is we're talking about human uh, expert interpretation, which um, is the best we have right now. Right. We're also working on uh, the future, which would probably be artificial intelligence and deep neural networks and um, algorithms that can learn just like a human learns. So all, all I did was put a bunch of lines in front of my brain, and my brain learned patterns. Mm-hmm. That's all it did. Mm-hmm. A computer should be able to do that way better than me. Um, and certainly, um, you know, I'll die in however many years, and then um, all that work will be for nothing. And if I could just make a computer memorize it all, right, and then have the computer look at EKGs all over the planet, um, we wouldn't have to spend years of our life memorizing schoolie lines. So... That's my. That's one of my long-term goals. You guys um, heard it here first. Dr. Myers wants to download his brain to a computer to live forever. Steve's brain. That's <laughs> that's my Steve Smith's brain into a black box. That would be my my crowning achievement. Um, and uh, once we can do that, uh, we can do you know trials on 
um, taking patients to the cath lab emergently who have occlusion without STEMI. Because uh, right now, one of the barriers is, sure, me and Steve say that we can find them all very accurately, but, you know, we're not there in every case in every right. place in the world. And how are we ever going to prove that if it's something that can't be reproduced? We would have to train humans to be really good at it and then have the humans be like radiologists for an EKG. That would be a human way to fix it. But that's not a great solution when we have something like AI that we could we could train. So that's our goal. Um, and uh, that will take decades to, yeah. to be trained that and to improve it. Uh, but um, I think once that happens, there won't be many barriers left to doing RCTs, proving that you know, we can find more benefit than just looking at STEMI or not. Yeah. So those are some long-term goals. But in the meantime, sorry, uh, it's just humans that have to memorize squiggly lines. Humans memorizing squiggly lines. That's what reading EKGs is. Well, I think that is probably enough for today. There are a lot of other EKG topics that I want to pick your brain about, Dr. Myers, as we continue these fireside chats. You know, the EKG and syncope, arrhythmias, all sorts of other things that we can talk about here. Do you think that you would be willing to do this again with me? Absolutely. Excellent. Well, so like I said before, I'm Claire. I'm one of the third-year residents, and this has been a chat with Dr. Myers about EKGs and STEMI and OMI and how to be better advocates for our patients. Thanks. Cool. Excited for next time. Yeah, that'd be great. Of course. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go. Be awesome today. Seems the out. Humans memorizing squiggly lines, that's what reading EKGs is.